0: Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme, I'll be talking to Indian novelist Manju Kapoor about her books and her background.
1: My father was an educationist and, uh, and, you know, very fond of books and so on and so forth. So I grew up in this atmosphere, you know, post-independence India, so total post-colonial project, you know, that reading English thinking in English and, well, now writing in English, so.
0: My first guest today is someone I've been looking forward to interviewing for a long time. Dwyane of Irish Literature, Edna O'Brien. Edna O'Brien achieved fame, indeed notoriety, with her first book, The Country Girls, published in 1960. Its frank portrayal of women's sex lives led to the book being banned in Ireland and even burned. A multitude of other books and different genres were to follow in the next 50 years novels, short stories, plays, biography and criticism. Her first book for Faber is a new collection of short stories entitled Saints and Sinners. What struck me about the book is not so much O'Brien's much-touted lyricism, we talk about that in the interview, but the passion and intensity of the writing, undimmed in a writing career now entering its sixth decade. Whether she's writing about a labourer's dreams of returning to Ireland, or a woman who fears she is losing her husband, or another who waits in vain for an audience with a great poet, or yet another who recalls the intensity of her relationship with her mother. The passion of the writing is everywhere apparent. And so too it was when I met Edna O'Brien. Rarely have I been so struck by the seriousness and dedication with which a writer approaches their craft. We met at the end of a morning which she had spent fruitlessly searching for her visa card, which explains a reference you'll hear to it later, and conducting the interview in her study. I began by asking her if this was where she did most of her writing.
2: Yes, I write and I call this the Three Sisters' Russian Room because of all, because it's red, and uh, all the books. I don't know if the Chekhov's Three Sisters had a lot of books, but they certainly had a lot of desire for poetry and books. And I write here, and as is evident, it is a little overfilled now, the room, with the books and the papers and the this and the that. And I have a, a dream, which of course will not come to pass, is that that wall, the adjoining wall, could somehow vanish, and I would go into an identical room to this room without the clutter. Then I could entertain as such in the other room and write in this room. But it's a very lucky room for me so far.
0: So many of your books have been written in, in this room?
2: I moved in here about 24 years ago. i written In the Forest, Down by the River, House Splendid Isolation, Wild Decembers, James Joyce, Lord Byron, Saints and Sinners, Three Plays, uh, Haunted and a version of The Country Girls. And I think several more books. In fact, I'm exhausted trying to remember them. They have. It's a very, it's quiet. The light is wonderful. And I do uh, believe in the old superstitions being a bit old fashioned. It feels like a lucky room for me. I feel okay in it.
0: And do you have certain preparatory rituals, as it were, before you before you set out to write? Or?
2: I do, and the ritual is to read. I would read just even one speech of Shakespeare, or a bit of the Bible. I have the Bible as living literature. I have that wonderful book, or a poem. I have at the moment. I have this wonderful anthology from Garnet Press of Russian poetry, and I would read a poem of Mandelstam or whoever I love. And that gets me a oh, Proust. It, it doesn't Ted Hughes, Seamus Heaney, Samuel Beckett, of course. Again and again, it doesn't matter who it is, and I don't mean to be. Ins- they're great writers. But when I read something that's very good, and that I know extraordinary work, and mind and thought and feeling has gone into it, it gives me encouragement. It doesn't mean that what I then write is up to scratch. It often isn't. But that's my, and I always write in the morning. If I haven't written, let's say by two o'clock, the day, I'm not going to be writing then. There are too many interruptions. And to write for me, some people are different. I have to be totally alone, unharried, and no noise. I can't even listen to music on the radio. Now, ironically, if the work is going well, and let's say I was on a train or a bus, and there are people around, I can write there because they're not going to bother me. Well, one hopes they're not going to. Except, of course, nowadays with uh, cell phones, everybody's yapping. So I look for the quiet carriage, which I'm sure you know. And do you do you write, do you tend to write quickly, draft quickly, or is it a, a slipper? Mm. So the pens are... The uh, oh, uh, pens, I use up so many pens like using up one's own blood I write quickly when it's going well And then I rewrite again and again And the trouble with my writing quickly Is sometimes even I If if a few days go by and I haven't gone back to it To copy it out in a slightly better hand I can't decipher it Because it, it's like tumbles oh. And that's the lucky bit getting it right then again and again i don't believe i am alone in this probably but i honestly don't believe writing with the machine computer is the best idea for creative work i don't actually i think it's so much a body mind physical spiritual mental thing but i th- think i'm alone in that p- preference
0: <laughs> well you can you can see you can see the track of your thoughts, can't you, when you've written by hand? Well, you
2: can run with the track of your thoughts. You can't so much see, you're not even seeing. You're seeing when you go back to it. But when you're doing it, you can, you can run with it. And it's just you and it. There's no costly machine. As you can see, I'm not pro-machinery.
0: <laughs> Tell me, Edna, about the place of the short story in your work because you've written of course novels and plays and, and and in many forms but when you when you sit down to write short stories are you in a particular frame of mind in order to to capture them
2: not so much a particular frame of mind because the frame of mind when i sit down to write is one of acute intensity and to tell you the truth anxiety i don't write with a free uh, well, sanguine spirit I, I don't the difference about writing a short story is the material itself suggests the narrative uh, a short story is as hard as a novel to write perhaps the only difference is a short story might take four or five months and a novel might take for three or four years the material decides the meteor. and whether it's a long novel or a short story. And what I think is different in the writing is with a short story, one A has to be more economical, but also the suspense, whether it's three pages long or thirty-three pages long, the suspense has to be sustained the whole time. There can be in a longer work Greatest example is in War and Peace, when Tolstoy goes to war. With a short story, and for that matter, very often with shorter fiction, I'm thinking of Tolstoy and the Kruz of Senata and other works, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, or however you pronounce it, they have a greater urgency. I'm not saying they're greater, but they have a greater urgency. I like writing short stories, and I wrote these stories for Saints and sinners over different, well, over about a couple of years, different states of mind that I was in. And the last story I wrote, I think is probably the most obsessing story, was Plunder. And I had written the first half of it, of children in a room and their mother taken, uh, some while back. And Lee, my editor from Faber, came to see me and I said I want to do the other half of that story and he was astonished when he got it because he liked the other half because they fit together homeless nameless and a little parable really of some of the awfulness that's happening in the world the story that took me that I had great pleasure in writing was it was shovel kings because I was able to interview A lot of men up in Kilburn and Camden Town and those places, in a pub always. I would always get there by half five because by half eight (laughs) the alcohol might have... And they were older men, some not yet retired, working on building sites, working in the building all over London And they were all Irish, although there were a few English men in there as well, and they were very jealous. They said, well, why don't you interview us? I said, okay, tell me your story. And they all told me different moments of their life and their hardships, but also their merriment and the things they did and missing Ireland and yet not really able to return to Ireland. So each story, you mentioned my two mothers. I suppose that came... I didn't have to interview anyone for that. That came from another place in the mind. My relationship with my mother is very intense and unending. The fact that she's dead doesn't alter that. And looking or thinking about them, not that I'm often thinking about them because they're done now, I just somehow think of the different states of mind that I was in, in order to do them. Like uh, Madame Cassandre's sort of, well, it's a bit highly strung story. It's a story of of her her marriage, really, of everything, told on the steps of the gypsy's caravan, the fortune teller she's hoping to meet but doesn't meet. So if one were to say... All the different stories, so to speak, and put them in a pot called a novel. They'd have to be written differently. Mm.
0: The reader can see that you're clearly enjoying experimenting with different approaches like to the it. form. Yeah, I love. I this. mean, as you said, Madame Cassandra is a sort of interior m- monologue Again, told in a rather yes. breathless sort of style, yeah. whereas Plunder is very, very spare. There the, the, yes. so you. I mean, that's clearly part of the, the practice of, of writing short stories.
2: It is, and it's part of the thrill. It's lovely to be able to, as I say, gallop with one and really leech the other out, second by second. They're all hard, I have to tell, say that. The most recent one I wrote was Inner Cowboy. And ironically, I wrote it before the the crash came, the financial crash in Ireland. But a lot of reviewers and in Ireland also have commented on it as being uh, relevant to you know the very the very rich and for that matter the very bumptious rich in you know developers contractors bankers all all actually ripping the country off yeah so there there was poor Carly the innocent who really did nothing wrong but found himself in the wrong and the sharks, as I call them.
0: I wanted just to, to to pause a moment on plunder because I I was really brought up short by the the bipartite structure of that story because the first part is told in the past tense and then there's a there's a gap no, and shift. suddenly you're in the present tense and just by that shift in tense. The whole thing becomes so much more fearful because you know they're back, and it's about the soldiers returning to to, to yeah. where this young girl lives. and i I thought that was sort of masterly. just by just by shifting tense, you'd suddenly create, you'd suddenly ratcheted up the tension,
2: yes, and that came actually unconsciously. Oh. I don't sit down and think, oh, that would oh. be better. They just come, you know, sometimes they don't come. Oh. And the reason I said to Lee, I want to do another half to that story. I always knew. It was only, it's like half a melon or an orange (laughs) that I would have to do the other half. And I couldn't do it till I was ready. That's the other thing with writing. You can only do it when it's ready to come out. That's why you can never predict what you will write next week or next day even. And the unconscious reason, which then, of course, I realized as being valid for the, the present tense, is... The thing I mentioned earlier is that dynamic of what is going to happen. The car is following her. Will they catch her? They do. What is going to happen? Whereas the first part is more, well, it's fear, but it's reverie. Whereas the second part is action, fear. I wished that I had 12 stories, but I couldn't break up plunder into two stories. But uh, I don't have 11 stories at the moment in me. What you
0: describe is a process of great intensity and compulsion. And is concentration. It a, is it a process that gives you pleasure, or is it, or is it, is the actual writing process more painful than pleasurable?
2: It's two things. It's both. If you can understand the paradox, when I write something that I know, and the writer or himself always knows if it's cuts the mustard, I'm very glad, and in fact rather thrilled Mm. but the getting to that is very, very, very hard Mm. because one lights a lot of lines that are really ninth rate and that have to be discarded Mm. but they have to be done it's like, you know, walking up it's Sisyphus, frankly, going up the mountain what I find I think hardest and I'm under considerable strain at the moment working on my memoir finishing a play, doing a lot for the short stories, is what I call the other things. Having to be here, there, and everywhere. Having to deal with many requests and many requirements, all of which are well-intentioned, but which make me irrationally and I mean the word, irrationally anxious. I think when I go up to look at email, if, I, if four more people ask me to appear at a festival or do this or do this, I actually get cross. I shouldn't, because they mean well. But what it is, is concentration and energy are the two most precious things for writing. They're not only precious, they're essential. Let's say there's the incipient talent, But that talent is rusty, unless it's worked at, worked at, worked at. And to work at it, like people say to me sometimes, not you, but people say, oh, do you work for three or four hours a day? I said, it's immaterial. Whether I work for eight hours or two hours, it's getting into that room in the mind. I'm sure Emily Dickinson would know more about this than I. In which you are able to give yourself utterly to that and be lucky in the trance of, and the time that you're doing it. Because it is like a trance. The phone rings or the doorbell rings or I can't find my Visa card. I, keep, I can't write. I can't write if I'm distracted. And it, it tells in work, in people's work. You can tell whether the writer is, is totally immersed in it. And it is, in fact, that is a very good word. It's an immersion. And a heater.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you in an interview before say that you became sentient. I think that was the word you used at an early age. And I wondered if that was your explanation for the very physical sense memories that, that clearly imbue your prose. If those everyday things which you evoke so well really were were laid down in your memory way way back
2: and i'm not alone in that i mean if you read a page of marcel proust you get that (laughs) you get that big time yes rilke called it didn't he the divine detail i was watchful always for many reasons one was fear the other was curiosity the other well i I was i wouldn't say that i was that at ease on earth as a child and a young person or even as an old person. So that makes you more watchful, but that could be just watchful about locking the door. Uh, Writers, I think, are are born, actually. I think it's there in them, this obsession with wanting to see everything, to hear everything, to observe everything, to feel it. I know that from my few times I met with him. I know that Samuel Beckett had that very much. He was growing a bit weary as time went on. He used to say, "Oh, Edna, the blood isn't getting back up to the brain." I know exactly what he meant, and it's that. It sounds very, if you like, ambitious or covetous, with regard. But it, it's neither of those things. Ambition shows itself perhaps in other forms of one's behavior uh, or being published at all. If one maybe should write the things and not have them published, but I'm not that noble a soul. also have to end my living. Okay. I think Ireland and my childhood and the locale, Druzeborough and the place and the fields and the flowers and the, I mean, the little flowers, the flowers, See the odd odd little clump of primroses in a field full of cow dung and cattle and uh, mounds and thistles. I was such a surprise. And in a way, everything was, and to some extent still is, it's a surprise to me as well when I see it. So I was given that particular kind of curiosity and intensity, which is... uh, essential to the writing. I couldn't be a writer if I didn't have that. That's why you often get people from the same family. Take Stanislaus, Joyce, and James. Stanislaus was very intelligent, a bit of a bore, but very intelligent. He couldn't understand why his brother could describe the broken spout of the teapot when they were all sparring at each other in one of the many poor houses they lived in in North Dublin. And it is, as I've said probably three times now, it is a gift and it is a gift that one has to, if you like, um, take care of. I can't find the right word. No, not so much nurture as not not um, throw it away.
0: Mm. I mean, it seems to me that you have the receptivity and the the retentiveness of, of those sense memories, but also the selectivity, because I, I keep seeing your prose described as lyrical, and lyrical to me suggests a certain kind of abandonment and almost a sort of self indulgence, and it seems to me your prose is, is not is not lyrical at all in that sense. It's it's highly precise and honed and intensified, but but lyrical is not is not the right well, word I for it. I think
2: lyrical gets <clears throat> gets bandied around a lot, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, Gerard Manley Hopkins is a great lyric poet. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes baffling mm. to me. He didn't waste a word. It, but the, a lyric quality is a very beautiful quality if it's mm. if it's good enough in whoever writes it. You know, the, for instance, The End of the Dead is one of the most lyric passages mm. in all of literature. Again, that's part of the, the journey of the doing of it is to um, get rid of any You know, clangers. Faulkner put it very nicely, although he didn't always, and I love Faulkner, but he didn't always abide by it himself. He said, first of all, talking when you're correcting, you must get rid of your darlings, meaning what was over the top. Now, I revere Faulkner, but sometimes he did not get rid of his darlings. (laughs) But in some books he did. As I Lay Dying is a great book of
0: are you are you aware of getting rid of your your own darlings? Is that conscious? I'm
2: rather hard on myself. Yes, I think I'm hard on my, and I'm hard on others um, about writing. I cannot bear it. Fills me with rage. Reading stuff that I know no real hard work went into, and a lot of it is the case. I'm not imagining this. I look at books in the bookshop. I always buy books, but they're rarely, they're books, you know, Anatomy of Melancholy or Pliny or something that I then don't fully finish. Oh. But I think, I think I am, and more so as I, you know, as you get older, you actually get harder on yourself. Oh. And it has to be, just has to gleam. And again, that adds to the bit of the exhaustion you think mm. how do I make a gleam mm.
0: well it, I mean it seemed to me that you you have a mastery of the image which is both surprising and yet unforced there's a there's a there's a passage in sinners in which an old woman is remembering her children's love and how the love over time like a garment that be, is washed again and again loses its color oh. and that just seemed to me such a wonderful surprising and yet Unshowy kind of way of expressing it. Well,
2: that's very nice to hear that. I often think, I love incidentally, although she was using the image in a more painful sense uh, than the woman in Saints and Sinners, I love garments that get washed and washed and washed because something, especially in blue, you know, that goes from a, a, a rich blue, paler and paler blue, because It's like a little story, actually. They carry the story of the life and the wear and tear of the jumper. And I remember reading once where that little image, I think, was formed, not formed in me, but where it began, like a little, you know, you store away all those little secrets. (laughs) And I think it was in Proust, but I could be wrong. And I was speaking of the relics of saints. And it's usually cloth, you know. And he talked, whatever author it was, and I would almost swear it was Proust, of the fact that it was no longer. There couldn't be enough cloth around St. Teresa or St. Anthony or whoever. But it was the garments, so to speak, that touched the garments. Does this make sense? Of, Mm. But it's probably not relevant to your reply. Uh, that made them still call it a relic. But I I think of uh, images about home a lot, and my mother washing, the washing tub, you know, on the washing board, and I would carry the clothes out to the line, and the line was on a kind of hillock, and the wind, there were trees with the wind blowing back and forth. And all those particularities, as I shall call them, Kind of pay me a visit all the yeah. time That's why it's very hard to be normal oh.
0: Pent up, frustrated female desire Remains a theme, it seems to me yes. In a number of these and stories And
2: desire too but tell, tell, me, tell me
0: a bit about that How that, how that manifests its, itself in, in the work
2: Well I think all our desires Are never met Or they're double crossed or thwarted I think it's a condition, not just of my thinking or writing, but of other thinkers and writers as well. But of course, it makes very good material for poetry or fiction. Mm. Yeats said somewhere, does the imagination dwell more on the woman gained or the woman lost? And the woman lost in his case, Maud gone. But in my case, um, a love lost or a love object not fulfilled or not come to its happy fruition, uh, is very much part of my life. It's not my whole life, but it's part of the life I have lived, and therefore it filters its way into fiction.
0: Another thing which has filtered its way into this fiction from your own life is your relationship with your mother. You mentioned Mm -hmm. already... I mean, My Two Mothers is an extraordinary piece, and I think it's my, my favourite piece in, in, in the collection. And from what, I, from what I know, you did draw on your own relationship with your mother a good deal in, in writing that piece.
2: I, I did. I couldn't not. I couldn't not. My mother had, as I have said, has a profound effect on me. But fiction is fiction. It's not a diary. What I wanted, which is why I call it "My Two Mothers," was to imagine another existence of the woman that I only know in, on one level as my mother, and that was is what I hope might have given it a little breath and a little life that you for you to like it. So it's it's both my mother and. It's an imaginary work because if somebody said to me, I wouldn't be able to do it actually, but if somebody said, can you sit down with me and just write or speak into a microphone and tell me about your mother, it would be totally different, wouldn't Mm. be like that. So that it's both true and false, and false may be true and altered or metamorphosized.
0: I mean, it, it it raises an ancillary question, then, about the process of, of writing your memoir.
2: Don't. Writing my memoir is proving. I have been one year now, one year, and I went to Faber. My inauguration at Faber was 2nd of February. They said which day, and I said, oh, Joyce's birthday, <laughs> Feb 2nd, because I'd had hip surgery, so I was able to go out after the 1st of February. And that was one year and almost one year and six weeks, and I have been, with interruption, of course, but I have been working very assiduously on it. And there's not much really I can tell you about it because I'm not ready to tell you.
0: I'll, I'll maybe you'll permit me to come back in, in the future exactly. and talk about no, it then. I
2: will, I will. I couldn't at the moment. Mm. It's all in
0: the heap. Mm. What is it about Ireland that keeps feeding your writing? All these. Decades after you left.
2: Yes. What is it about I did it to a few other writers as well. Some I've mentioned down the yes. line. Yes. Not to Bernard Shaw who called her that cabbage patch. I don't know. It's just a great haunter. Everything about her, the voices, the, the rhythm of speech, the countryside itself, the rain, the this, the that. It's, it's like it's stamped on one. Branded. You know, the way an animal is branded. Mm with its name or number, Ireland brands one. And it's no accident just to take it on a slightly other level. I'm not saying that it's a big deal, but the Irish go in more for abroad when the New York and for the old St. Patrick's Day and things. The Yugoslavs don't seem to do it or the Russians, or if they do, they don't make as big a show of it. And it's something about the particular nature of character and the kind of nurture or non-nurture that makes those who have left Ireland unable to really leave it. Unable to return to it and unable to really leave it. Good for good for fiction.
0: So it's not something you've resisted, it's something you've embraced or which has embraced you.
2: I couldn't do either actually consciously because it wouldn't be as simple as that. It's not like to go back to the cardigan, it's not like taking off a cardigan. It's there. There are the echoes, there are the sounds. When I hear wind at night, I think of Ireland. A fox is in my garden at the moment, much to my dismay. And I think of foxes at home. So that I overlap my present existence with my former existence, both as a person and in my everyday thinking and when I sit down to write.
0: Edna O'Brien. Her collection of short stories, Saints and Sinners, is out now in paperback. Manju Kapoor, my second guest today, visited the Faber offices recently on a trip from her home in New Delhi to coincide with the publication of her fifth novel, Custody. Like Edna O'Brien, Manju achieved success with her first book, Difficult Daughters, which won a Commonwealth First Novel Prize and was a number one bestseller in India. Her subsequent novels have continued to chart the effects of a changing India on people's personal lives, none more so than her latest, Custody. Raman and Shagun seem to have it all. He has a good job in marketing with a multinational drinks company. She is young and beautiful, the mother of two young children. They live in a smart apartment and are planning a trip to England. But Shagun wants more, and Raman's boss, Ashok, is more than ready to supply it. Their affair is going to rip apart the marriage and make the children the subject of a prolonged custody battle through the labyrinthine Indian legal system. When I met Manju Kapoor, I started by asking her about setting her book in the late 1990s. Had she chosen that as a particular time of change in an India that was opening up more and more to the forces of globalisation?
1: Well, I chose it deliberately because the 90s was the time of economic liberalisation and the country was opening up to foreign investment, and MNCs, multinational companies, were coming and hiring and uh, with higher salaries and so on and so forth. So when I started thinking about this book, I wondered what kind of impact would that have on a family. One can see the impact of the opening up of our society In India, in urban centers in particular, there are more women working, which is a good thing. I mean, anything that gets uh, women working is a good thing, working and independent. And uh, they are, and also another thing that's happened is that Western influences on manners, on clothes, even on eating habits is becoming. Uh, increasingly more apparent. So that's why I set it against the 90s. And it straddles, you know, it goes into the 21st century for about three or four years.
0: It's interesting because Ashok, the man whom Shagun falls in love with and for whom she leaves her husband, is born and educated at an Indian school. But then he goes abroad and spends a lot of his his early career abroad. So he's got some very interesting perspectives and he's kind of almost an embodiment of of some of these changes, isn't he? These attitudes that he he brings back, the critical eye he brings to Indian society.
1: Well, he's come back. You see, he's not really Indian in that sense. He's kind of global. He's international because he comes back to India with a multinational. So he comes back as representing a foreign brand that's significant because that's, you know, his character isn't, as I said, wholly Indian. It's kind of a mix. And when he sees Shagun, he thinks what attracts him to Shagun is also that she seems a mix, that you can't identify where she's from. That is just her, because she's fair, she's got green eyes, she could, and yet she has, she has had an Indian traditional upbringing. So she has that part of India in her, but the visible part of her is, could be anywhere. So that's what attracts him to her. So yes, you're right. That the fact that he is, he's educated in India, but that was just his early education. Mm-hmm. And later on, it's abroad, you know, again, even his education is kind of a brand, you mm-hmm. know, the Harvard Business School and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So these things are, as I said these global bla- brands are, represent a certain kind of aspiration, Indian aspiration, not only individually, mm-hmm. But, uh, as a country that, okay, we are a market that has these brands, but we can also be as good as, you know, prove ourselves to be as good as them and, you know, open up, but also compete with them. So, okay, the brand has come, but we have our own image also to present to the world in a way. And that image is of India growing, India, you know, being an economic superpower or trying to be and so on and so forth. Many people, I mean, and this has nothing to do with the book, find this totally pathetic, you know, how are we a superpower when we have so much poverty, so much bad health and education and uh, health are still issues for so many millions of people.
0: Ashok and and Raman, who works for him, for this multinational, which is referred to as, as the brand, they're both devoting large parts of their energy, most of their, their waking hours really, to selling a mango drink, which seems ironic because we, we have to presume this is a, a European or an American corporation which is actually selling a, a mango drink to the Indians. And so that seems ironic.
1: Well, that's the, uh, the thing about it, at least so far as food is concerned in India, think global, act local. And we have had, uh, for example, Kentucky Fried Chicken did not succeed but other brands do. But they they succeed often with difficulty because they make losses in the beginning years. But in order, I mean, India is seen as a vast consumer society. I mean, a billion, over a billion potential consumers. So this is seen as very attractive. On the other hand, how do you get people to consume things they've never consumed before? You create a need, you know, market it with glamour and so on and so forth. So these strategies combine, in a way, Indian ethos with Western marketing. So it's a combination of both. So, yes, that is what is happening in India now, that we have these things adapted to an Indian market. Similarly, lifestyles adapted to an Indian, adapted to an Indian, you know, a combination of Western and Indian how do these two fit together? It's a somewhat uneasy mix, and it's happening all around you in India, especially in, as I said, in urban in urban centres with you know the rising middle class and so on and so forth. So I wanted to look at some of the tensions behind these uh, this coming together of uh, you know two very different ways of being of thinking about yourself. For example, in custody, how do you think about yourself? How do women think about themselves or how men or women? Do they think of themselves as part of a family unit to which everything is subservient? Or do they think of themselves as individuals whose own desires are equally important and they are going to fulfill those, those desires even at the cost of the family? So that's what I wanted to look at.
0: We've mentioned Shagun, one of the the leading female characters in the book already, and you you mentioned that sort of indefinable blend of of East and West that's part of her appearance and the fact that she had a traditional upbringing. Say a little bit more about her background, what kind of experience she's had before the events the book narrates.
1: Shagun's thing really is her beauty. And like a society that is... uh, devoted to appearances, her appearance takes her where she goes. So in a sense, after, uh, Shanguna has just had a traditional upbringing. She's, you know, the daughter of a widow. She's had an education in one of the better colleges in Delhi University. And then she got married like good looking women often do. Sometimes they follow a career afterwards, but, you know, they're so sought after that they marry very quickly. Uh, right after college and that's what happened to her so she marries after college and it's after that really that her beauty the way she looks is seen as needing something more than just the homegrown product just raman so when she gets this opportunity she takes it you know because then for her too the world opens not through her own initiative but through men through marriage through uh again leaving india and going abroad and she ends up in new york in oh, fact oh. so
0: and yet from the outside i suppose she and raman could be seen to be living the you know living the dream he's working he's got a well paid job for a multinational company he seems to be doing quite well he's the talent spotted by the by the bosses and she's very beautiful they've got a nice lifestyle yeah is yeah. there an implicit sort of critique about the the, the risks inherent in, in, in that sort of rapidly accelerating dream?
1: No, the critique wasn't of the... Ra- because you see, other people can do it and want to do it. I mean, if you can rise rapidly, surely... I mean, a lot of dreams, urban dreams are centered around that. So it's not a critique of that. It's how do you handle it? How do you handle success and money? Do you handle it by leaving it? and jumping up to something else? Or do you handle it by then enjoying it, being able to be satisfied by it? The problem with her is is her dissatisfaction, because suddenly she feels, and of course Ashok is feeding her these ideas, but she gets, I mean, she allows them to be fed to her. So suddenly she feels that, you know, impatient, her life seems too restricted and, and you know, small even. So that's when she wants, you know, the world to open up. And that's really, you know, just, I guess, a sign of consumerism, greed or whatever, that Mm -hmm. you want more, more, more. And where do you stop? Really, where do you stop? This could happen again.
0: And if that is a very modern phenomenon and something which, I guess, Indian women have only recently encountered, there's there's a, a, you know, this, option of self-realization, whether it's through consumerism or whatever. Ishita, the other female protagonist of the book, has a marriage which also ends, but for what we might see as very traditional reasons. Can you say something about her experience in her first marriage?
1: Yeah, there are traditional reasons. So what I'm doing with putting both these marriages together is saying that It's not necessarily true that if you lead a modern lifestyle, your marriage is going to crumble. There there are traditional reasons also for a marriage to crumble. So it's not, you know, okay, modern all bad, traditional all good. That's not the case. She has a traditional marriage with a traditional joint family. Shagun is a nuclear family and yet both these marriages are crumbling because of different dynamics but the result is the same. So I didn't want to really do a traditional versus modern thing. I think those dichotomies can be misleading and too black and white and, you know, uh, don't really tell us anything. Mm. So that's why I did that, you know, that, okay, that for traditional reasons, I mean, she has modern methods to diagnose, you know, <laughs> traditional a traditional mm. condition or whatever, but... It's still bad for her. So w- women do, but here the, the men suffer too. So, yeah,
0: I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, where, did did you f- did you sort of feel when you were writing the book, your sympathies particularly drawn to one or other of the characters, or did that did that shift, or how did you how did you sort of manage that as you were writing about each of them? Each of them you know, suffering pain for different mm-hmm. reasons in different ways.
1: Did my sympathies shift? No, no. My sympathies don't shift. My sympathy is with every one of them. I don't want to write as though, you know, there's one person who is bad and who is, you know, the villain of the villain or the villainess of the piece. They all have their dynamics. They all want to be happy. They're all going about it in ways that you know, uh, where they have to negotiate their own desire for happiness with the claims of other people on them. And some of them, some of the characters feel the claims of those other people more and some feel the claims less. But uh, it depends really on their own sense of duty and responsibility. And they all, it also depends on what they think they can get. I really do believe that our responses to situations are partly formed by circumstances and how much we feel uh, we can get away with getting what we want, you know, in the way we want it. So nobody's really good or bad. They're just all somewhat struggling and unhappy. But given all that, I think that Raman is the one who is really seen as consistently, not that I sympathize with him more, but in the end, he is the one who, in a way, loses the most. So that's a little sad.
0: Mm. I suppose that's what I was trying to—I <laughs> was leading you to see if you would confess that because that was my sense reading the book that that Raman probably, and and also p- perhaps the character whose emotional life is most explored and most gone into, and we probably learn most about his yes. his shifting emotions yes, yes. throughout the book.
1: Well, he's the one consistently there from beginning mm. to end. The women come and go. i and, and like the first thing half is more about shagun, the second half is more about ishita. But Raman's there consistently, as husband and as parent. So yes, yes, he, we are with him from beginning yeah. to end. Yeah.
0: And for someone who who you know has read novels about emotional troubles in New York or Paris or London, a very big difference in your book is the role played by the the, the parents. And the extended families. I mean, that's that's probably self-evident to say that, but <laughs> but but that it, it struck me is such a consideration. And whereas these problems would probably be worked out within one generation in a European family, it was v- very much part of the fabric of the novel. Is what the parents are saying and their influence and how they're they're handling it or being handled.
1: Well, you know, Indian life is. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Indian novels, Indian life, I mean, it is very family-centered. And so, yeah, your parents are there, you know, whether you want it or not. And... (laughs) So they they are very much part of the picture, even if you're not living with them.
0: Mm. But they're but they're, they're also coping with these changes, aren't they? Because, um, Ishita's father he says at one point, you know, we've respected the norms. Now it's time to to deal with the needs. And <laughs> it's, it, that seemed to me very a very good way of sort of summing up what what a lot of the, the the parents were sort of struggling with.
1: Yes, yes, it is true, because in India as elsewhere, I guess parents see themselves reflected in their children. So I also. Uh, wanted to show Ishita's parents changing along with her and somehow being able to do that as, of course, you know, this set of parents is contrasted with Raman's parents who also have to change. So it's not as though anybody is stuck or fixed in in their responses, but they do change because they love their children. So there is that. And Actually, I wanted to spend more time on the parents because... But, you know, the book was getting very long. <laughs> because there are three sets of parents yeah. in this. Yeah. So so that I wanted to, in fact, do Ashok and his parents. But, you know, then I thought this is going to get very unwieldy. <laughs> mm.
0: Well, I, I, I like the fact that Ashok was remains something of a mystery there are times when he does come into sharper focus for example when his stepson is going to secondary school and he has a very direct influence on that but at other times he, he does he does remain somewhat shadowy uh, you know shadowy. in the background
1: yeah that's deliberately done because his importance is really he's just like a force dropped into this mm. these setups mm. and uh, to see really the effect he has. On them. That was the thing. Not so much his own life or his own thoughts or whatever, whatever, but how he affects them. In the beginning, in fact, I wasn't going to have him at all. He was just going to be completely off stage and uh, only seen in connection through other people but then I changed that everybody said I couldn't do that <laughs> so my writers group my friends so. <laughs>
0: we haven't talked about the children yet and they obviously are a very very big part of it a lot of the book concerns the the battle for custody of the children was that really the fundamental thing that made you want to write this novel to actually look at the yes, the yes. Imp- implications yeah, and yeah, the impact yeah. on on um, you know those children
1: yeah, the legal system, that was one thing that uh, I wanted to... I mean, the legal system in India is really... It's exactly like this. It's worse, in fact. So uh, the legal system was one thing I, I wanted to look at. When I was writing about the children and, cus- and, and the issue of custody, I didn't really want to look at... I mean, I did want to look at how they were feeling, but I didn't want to explore it through their consciousness so much. I see how, because they also become ciphers, or they're, they're a battleground, really, over which, and, and the grown-ups are fighting on this oh. battleground. So what I really wanted to look at was that. And they are not incidental, but, uh, yeah, it's about their custody, but I don't know, it's not about them.
0: Say say something about the Indian legal system then, for people who haven't uh, (laughs) any experience of it, because (laughs) that's—it's
1: horrendous. (laughs) It's horrendous. It's overloaded, like our educational system, like our health system. So it's overloaded, and uh, there are endless delays. I mean, it's very hard to to see a case to its conclusion. I won't say within your lifetime because it does happen, but. It's common for cases to take five years, ten years, two decades, you know. It can just go on and on forever, and then you've lost your life, you've lost your youth, you've lost everything. So it's extremely pernicious, actually. And there is a lot of debate in newspapers today how to speed things up because there are even cases of people dying and, you know, their children are fighting their cases and so on and so forth. I mean, that has to do with property, but... I mean, there's stories of people dying in prison before their case comes to be heard. So it's bad. Our system is bad because it's overloaded. That's why.
0: So tell me, tell me a little bit about your own background. Were you brought up in a household where where reading and education were were highly prized?
1: Oh yes, yes. My father was an educationist and uh, and you know very fond of books and so on and so forth. So I grew up in this atmosphere, you know, post independence India. So total postcolonial project, you know, the reading English, thinking in English and well, now writing in English. Mm-hmm. So so that was the emphasis in my family on education. But that the emphasis on education in most families hasn't changed. It's tremendously important because it's seen as as I said in middle class families, education is seen as important. You know, in business families and families with inherited wealth, it's not seen as so significant. In trader families, like in home, again, it's not important. And uh, it depends on where you come from, the The emphasis is placed, especially if you're a girl, if you're mm. a boy, if you're going to get married, if you're going to work. How important is this? All these are things that change according to your class, your background, mm. your gender.
0: Tell me about your own determination to become a writer. When, when did that start and what, what fed it?
1: That started when I was... Uh, I had my last child when I was 41. It was only after that that I thought of becoming a writer. And because I certainly hadn't always wanted to be, not at all. But Indian writing at that time, this was 1991 and Indian writing was booming and, you know, everybody around me was writing and I wanted to do something else besides teaching. So I thought, let me try writing. It was really just like that. Just let me try it and see where I go. And that, uh, you know, then I said I'll try it for two years. And two came, three, five, six, mm. eight. It took eight years to get my first mm. book published.
0: What were the subjects which attracted you? Did you feel there were there were issues in Indian society that you wanted to tackle particularly? How did how did it how did it go from that decision <laughs> that you're going to write to actually forming novels? Well, very
1: tentatively. I find my stories uh, as I write them; the stories kind of come. I have, maybe because I've been a teacher all my life, I I tend to think in terms of themes and, for example, in difficult, I mean, these themes are useful to no one but me because uh, I don't even know whether they're apparent to the reader. But in uh, Difficult Daughters, I wanted to explore how educated women leaded uneducated lives, you know, lives that were really quite took choices that were bad for them, made decisions that went against their best interests because of love or emotional reasons or whatever, whatever. So what was making them do that? And I started with a divorced woman in her 40s. And then I said, okay, what's making this woman like her? Look at her mother. What's making her mother like her, like that? Look at her mother. So by the end of looking at all these mothers, I had written 170,000 words and I said, no point coming back to the present now, just chuck that. So really, it was through writing that I found a story and that happens every time. So I have a theme and the theme is usually drawn from things that happen around me, like globalization and economic liberalization in this or in home, joint family. And not the joint family just like that, but how joint families can both sustain their women and be very supportive as well as destroy them, both in the same site that's happening. And with the married woman, it was to do with the Babri Masjid, which was again something, an issue that I felt very strongly about. The immigrant was all these NRIs. What happens to your identity when you move? Because I've lived abroad and NRI, my daughters are abroad, and NRIs are something that every family has and we see every winter they come back for mm. two, three weeks and then <laughs> go back again. So mm. the same conversations you hear, the same issues. What is it that makes you Indian? What is it that, you know, how, how Indian do you become abroad? Very Indian. Mm. Far more Indian oh. abroad than at home.
0: <laughs> Manju Kapoor. Her latest novel, Custody, is out now in paperback and her four previous books are also available from Faber. There are full details on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. While you're there, be sure to check out the podcast archive, where my previous guests have included Orhan Pamuk, Paul Oster and Peter Carey, and also the Faber blog, The Thought Fox. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme, in which my guests will be novelist Andrew Martin, whose new railway detective novel is set on the Somme, and scientist Lewis Wolpert, will be telling me about the science of aging. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.